109. Neshua Kadal. Reshafir, the Midnight Mother, is another unmade who appears to have been destroyed at Aharayetiam. From Hesse's Mythica, page 250. Dalinar ran his fingers along a line of red crystal embedded in the stone wall. The little vein started at the ceiling and wound all the way down the wall, within the pattern of the light green and gray strata, to the floor. It was smooth to the touch, distinct in texture from the rock around it. He rubbed his thumb across the crystal. It's like the other strata lines ripple out from this one, getting wider as they move away from it. What does it mean? he asked Navani. The two of them stood in a storage room near the top of the tower. I don't know, Navani said, but we're finding more and more of them. What do you know of essential theology? A thing for ardents and scribes, he said. And soul casters? That is a garnet. Garnet, let's see. Emeralds for grain, that was the most important and Heliodor's for flesh. They raised animals for their gem hearts to provide those two. He was pretty sure diamonds made quartz and... storms, he didn't know much about the others. Topaz made stone, they'd needed those for the bunkers on the shattered plains. Garnets make blood, Nevani said. We don't have any soul casters that use them. Blood? That sounds useless. Well, scientifically, we think soulcasters were able to use garnets to make any liquid that was soluble in water as opposed to oil-based. Your eyes are crossing. Sorry. He felt at the crystals. Another mystery. When will we find answers? The records below, Nevani said, speak of this tower like a living thing, with a heart of emerald and ruby, and now these veins of garnet. He stood up, looking around the darkened room, which held the monarch's chairs between meetings. It was lit by a sphere he'd set on a stone ledge by the door. If this tower was alive, Dalinar said, then it's dead now. Or sleeping. But if that's the case, I have no idea how to wake it. We've tried infusing the heart like a fabriel, even had Renarin try to push stormlight into it. Nothing's worked. Dalinar picked up a chair, then pushed the door open. He held the door with his foot, shooing away a guard who tried to do it for him, while Navani collected the sphere and joined him in the conference room in front of the glass wall looking toward the origin. He set down the chair and checked his forearm clock. Stupid thing. He was growing far too dependent upon it. The arm device had a pain reel in it, too, a kind of fabriel with a spren that feasted upon pain. He'd never yet remembered to use the thing. Twelve minutes left. Assuming Elthabar's calculations were correct. With span reads confirming the storm's arrival hours before in the east, the calculations were down to judging the speed of the storm. A runner arrived at the door. Creer, the duty sergeant for guards today, accepted it. He was a bridgeman from... Bridge 20, was it? He and his brother were both guards, though Creer wore spectacles, unlike his twin. "'Message from Brightness Call, sir,' Creer said, handing the note to Navani. It looked like it had come from a span read. 
It had marks on the sides from the clips that had held it to the board, and the tight letters covered only the center of the page. From Fen, Navani said. A merchant ship vanished in the southern depths this morning, just off Marat. They went ashore at what they hoped was a safe distance to use the span reed, and reported a large number of ships at dock along the coast. Glowing figures rose from a nearby city and descended upon them, and the communication cut off. Confirmation, Dalinar said, that the enemy is building up a navy. If that fleet launched from Marat before his own ships were ready, or if the winds were wrong when his armada did launch. Have Teshev right back to the Thalans, Dalinar said. Suggest to Queen Fen and our other allies that we hold the next meeting in Thalan City. We'll want to inspect fortifications and shore up the ground defenses. He sent the guards to wait outside, then approached the window and checked his wrist clock. Just a few minutes left. He thought he could see the storm wall below, but it was difficult to be sure from this height. He wasn't accustomed to looking down on a high storm. Are you sure you want to do this? Navani asked. The stormfather asked me something similar this morning. I asked him if he knew the first rule of warfare. Is that the one about terrain or the one about attacking where the enemy is weak? He could pick it out now a dark ripple surging through the sky below. Neither, Dalinar said. Ah, right, Navani said. I should have guessed. She was nervous, with good cause. It was the first time he'd stepped back into the visions since meeting Odium. But Dalinar felt blind in this war. He didn't know what the enemy wanted or how they intended to exploit their conquests. The first rule of war, know your enemy. He raised his chin as the storm slammed into Eurythiru, roughly at the height of its third tier. All went white. Then Dalinar appeared in the ancient palace, the large open room with sandstone pillars and a balcony that looked out on an antiquated version of Kolinar. Noadon strode through the center of the pillared chamber. This was the youthful Noadon, not the elderly version from his recent dream. Dalinar had taken the place of a guardsman, near the doors. A slender Parshendi woman appeared beside the king in the spot Dalinar had occupied so long ago. Her skin was marbled red and white in a complex pattern, and she had long orange-red hair. She looked down with red eyes, surprised by her sudden appearance and the robes she wore, those of an advisor to the king. Noadon began speaking to her as if she were his friend, Carm. I don't know what to do, old friend. Odium sees the division has begun, the Stormfather warned Dalinar. The enemy is focusing on us. He comes. Can you hold him back? I am but a shadow of a god. His power vastly outstrips my own. He sounded smaller than Dalinar was accustomed to. Like the quintessential bully, the Stormfather didn't know how to face someone stronger than himself. Can you hold him back? I need time to talk to her. I will try. Good enough. Unfortunately, it meant that Dalinar didn't have time to let this Parshendi woman experience the vision in full. He strode toward her and Noadon. Venley turned around. Where was she? This wasn't Marat. Had Odium summoned her again? 
No, it's the wrong storm. He doesn't come during high storms. A young Alethi male in robes was blathering at her. She ignored him, biting her hand to see if she could feel the pain. She could. She shook her hand and looked down at the robes she wore. This couldn't be a dream. It was too real. My friend, the Alethi man asked, are you well? I realize that events have taken their toll on us all, but... Footsteps rang loudly on the stone as another Alethi man approached, wearing a crisp blue uniform. White dusted the hair at his temples, and his face wasn't as round as other human faces. His features could almost have been those of a listener, even if that nose was wrong and the face bore far more creases than a listener's ever would. Wait, she thought, attuning curiosity. Is that... Disturbance on the battlefield, sir, the older man said to her companion. You are needed immediately. What is this? I didn't hear- They didn't say what it was, your majesty, only that you are urgently requested. The human king drew his lips to a tight line, and then, obviously frustrated, stalked toward the doorway. Come, he said to Venley. The older man grabbed her arm above the elbow. Don't, he said softly. We need to talk. This is the Alethi warlord. My name is Dalinar Colin, the man said. I lead the Alethi, and you're seeing a vision of past events. Only your mind has been transported, not your body. We two are the only real people here. She yanked her arm out of his hand and attuned irritation. How, why have you brought me here? I want to talk. Of course you do. Now that you're losing, now that we've seized your capital, now you want to talk. What of the years spent slaughtering my people on the shattered plains? It had been a game to them. Listener spy reports had shown the humans had enjoyed the sport on the shattered plains claiming wealth and listener lives as part of a grand contest. We were willing to talk when you sent your emissary, Dalinar said. The shard bearer, I'm willing to talk again now. I want to forget old grievances, even those personal to me. Venley walked away, still attuned to irritation. How have you brought me to this place? Is this a prison? Is this your work? Odium? Testing my loyalty with a false vision of the enemy? She was using the old rhythms. She'd never been able to do that when Odium's attention had been on her. I'll send you back soon, Colin said, catching up to her. Though he was not short for a human, her current form was a good six inches taller than he was. Please, just hear me out. I need to know. What would a truce between our people cost? A truce? She asked to amusement, stopping near the balcony. A truce? Peace, no desolation, no war. What would it cost? Well, for a start, it would cost your kingdom. He grimaced. His words were dead like those of all humans, but he wore his feelings on his face. So much passion and emotion. 
Is that why the spren betrayed us for them? What is Alethkar to you? He said. I can help you build a new nation on the shattered plains. I will give you laborers to raise cities, ardents to teach any skill you want, wealth as payment in ransom for Kolinar and its people, a formal apology, whatever you demand. I demand that we keep Alethkar. His face became a mask of pain. His brow furrowed. Why must you live there? To you, Alethkar is a place to conquer. But it's my homeland. She attuned reprimand. Don't you understand? The people who live there, the singers, my cousins, are from Alethkar. That is their homeland, too. The only difference between them and you is that they were born as slaves and you as their master. He winced. Perhaps some other accommodation, then. A dividing of the kingdom? A Parshman high prince? He seemed shocked to be considering it. She attuned resolve. Your tone implies you know that would be impossible. There can be no accommodation, human. Send me from this place. We can meet on the battlefield. No, he seized her arm again. I don't know what the accommodation will be, but we can find one. Let me prove to you that I want to negotiate instead of fight. You can start, she said to irritation, pulling away from him, by not assaulting me. She wasn't certain she could fight him, honestly. Her current body was tall but fragile, and in truth, she'd never been proficient at battle, even during the days when she'd taken an appropriate form. At least, let us try a negotiation, he said. Please. He didn't sound very pleading. He'd grown stern, face like a stone, glaring. With the rhythms, you could infuse your tone with the mood you wished to convey, even if your emotions weren't cooperating. Humans didn't have that tool. They were as dull as the dullest slave. A sudden thump resounded in the vision. Venley attuned anxiety and rushed out onto the balcony. A half-destroyed city stretched below, where a battle had happened, dead heaped in piles. That pounding sounded again. The, the air was breaking. The clouds and sky seemed to be a mural painted on an enormous dome ceiling. And as the pounds continued, a web of cracks appeared overhead. Beyond them shone a vivid yellow light. He's here, she whispered, then waved toward it. That's why there can't be a negotiation, human he knows we don't need one. You want peace? Surrender. Give yourselves up and hope that he doesn't care to destroy you. A faint hope, considering what Rhine had said to her about exterminating the humans. With the next pound, the sky fractured and a hole appeared overhead, a powerful light shining beyond. The very shards of the air, broken like a mirror, were sucked into that light. A pulse of power blasted from the hole, shaking the city with a terrible vibration. It tossed Venley to the balcony's floor. 
Colin reached to help her, but a second pulse caused him to fall as well. The bricks in the room's wall separated from one another and began to float apart. The boards that made up the balcony began to lift, nails floating into the sky. A guard ran to the balcony but stumbled, and his very skin started to separate into water and a dried husk. Everything just came apart. A wind rose around Venley, pulling debris toward that hole in the sky and the brilliant, terrible light beyond. Boards shredded to splinters. Bricks floated past her head. She growled, the rhythm of resolve thumping inside her as she grabbed and clung to parts of the floor that hadn't yet separated. That burning! She knew it well, the terrible pain of odium's heat scalding her skin, scorching her until her very bones, somehow still able to feel, became ash. It happened every time he gave her orders. What worse thing would he do if he found her fraternizing with the enemy? She attuned determination and crawled away from the light. Escape! She reached the chamber beyond the balcony and lurched to her feet, trying to run. The wind pulled at her, making each step a struggle. Overhead, the ceiling separated in a single magnificent burst, each brick exploding away from the others, then streaming toward the void. The pieces of the unfortunate guard rose after them, a sack drained of grain, a puppet with no controlling hand. Venley dropped to the ground again and continued crawling, but the stones of the floor separated, floating upward with her on them. Soon she was scrambling precariously from one floating piece of stone to another. The rhythm of resolve still attuned, she dared to glance backward. The hole had widened, and the all-consuming light feasted on the streams of refuse. She turned away, desperate to do what she could to delay her own burning. Then she stopped and looked back again. Dalinar Colin stood on the balcony, and he was glowing. Neshua Kadal, radiant night. Without meaning to, she attuned the rhythm of awe. Around Colin, the balcony was stable. Boards trembled and quivered at his feet, but did not move into the sky. The balcony railing had ripped apart to either side of him, but where he held to it with a firm grip, it remained secure. He was her enemy, and yet, long ago, these humans had resisted her gods. Yes, the enslavement of her cousins, the singers, was impossible to ignore. Still, the humans had fought and had won. The listeners remembered this as a song sung to the rhythm of awe. Neshua Kadal. The calm, gentle light spread from Dalinar Colin's hand to the railing, then down into the floor. Boards and stones sank down from the air, re-knitting. Venley's current block of stone settled back into place. All through the city, buildings burst apart and zoomed upward but the walls of this tower returned to their positions. Venley immediately made for the steps downward. If whatever Colin was doing stopped, 
She wanted to be on solid rock. She wound her way to the ground floor, then, once on the street, she positioned herself near the balcony and Colin's influence. Above, Odium's light went out. Stones and splinters rained down on the city, crashing about her. Dried bodies dropped like discarded clothing. Venley pressed back against the tower wall, attuning anxiety, raising her arm against the dust of the debris. The hole remained in the sky, though the light was gone from behind it. Below the rubbled remains of the city seemed a sham. No cries of fear, no moans of pain. Bodies were just husks, skins lying empty on the ground. A sudden pounding broke the air behind her, opening another hole, lower down and near the edge of the city. The sky crumbled into the gap, revealing that hateful light again. It consumed everything near it, wall, buildings, even the ground disintegrating and flowing into the maw. Dust and debris washed over Venley in a furious wind. She pressed against the stone wall, clinging to one of the balcony's supports. Terrible heat washed across her from the distant hole. Clamping her eyes shut, she tightened her grip. He could come claim her, but she would not let go. And what of the grand purpose? What of the power he offers? Did she still want those things? Or was that merely something to grasp onto now that she had brought about the end of her people? She gritted her teeth. In the distance, she heard a quiet rhythm. Somehow it sounded over the roar of the wind, the clacking of dust and stones, the rhythm of anxiety. She opened her eyes and saw Timber fighting against the wind in an attempt to reach her. Bursts of light exploded from the little spren in frantic rings. Buildings crumbled along the street. The entire city was collapsing away. Even the palace broke apart, all save this one patch near the balcony. The little spren changed to the rhythm of the lost and began to slide backward. Venley shouted and released the pillar. She immediately was pushed with the wind, but although she wasn't in storm form any longer, this was a form of power, incredibly nimble. She controlled her fall, going down on her side and skidding on the stones, feet toward the oppressive light. As she neared the little spren, Venley jammed her foot into a cleft in the street, then grabbed a crack in a broken stone, pulling herself to a halt. With her other hand, she twisted and snatched timber from the air. Touching timber felt like touching silk, being blown by a wind. As Venley folded her left hand around the spren, she felt a pulsing warmth. Timber pulsed to praise as Venley pulled her close to her breast. Great, Venley thought, lowering her head against the wind, her face against the ground, holding on to the cleft in the rock with her right hand. Now we can fall together. She had one hope, to hold on and hope that eventually... The heat faded, the wind stilled. Debris came clattering back to the ground, though the fall was less clamorous this time. Not only had the wind been pulling sideways rather than up, there simply wasn't much debris left. Venley rose, covered in dust, her face and hands cut by chips of stone. Timber pulsed softly in her hand. 
the city was basically gone. No more than the occasional outline of a building foundation and the remains of the strange rock formations known as the wind blades. Even those had been weathered down to knobs five or six feet tall. The only structure in the city that remained was a quarter of the tower where Colin had been standing. Behind her was a black, gaping hole into nothingness. The ground trembled. Oh, no. Something beat against the stones underneath her. The very ground began to shake and crumble. Venli ran toward the broken palace right as everything at last fell apart. The ground, the remaining foundations, even the air seemed to disintegrate. A chasm opened beneath her, and Venli leaped, trying to reach the other side. She came up a few feet short and plummeted into the hole. Falling, she twisted in the air, reaching for the collapsing sky with one hand and clutching timber in the other. Above, the man in the blue uniform leaped into the chasm. He fell beside the hole's perimeter and stretched one hand toward Venley, his other ground against the rock wall, hand scraping the stone. Something flashed around his arm, lines of light, a framework that covered his body. His fingers didn't bleed as they scraped the stone. Around her, the rocks, the air itself became more substantial. In defiance of the heat below, Venley slowed just enough that her fingers met those of Colin. Go. She crashed to the floor of her cave back in Marat, the vision gone. Sweating, panting, she opened her left fist. To her relief, timber floated out, pulsing with a hesitant rhythm. Dalinar dissolved into pure pain. He felt himself being ripped apart, flayed, shredded. Each piece of him removed and allowed to hurt in isolation, a punishment, a retribution, a personalized torment. He could have persisted for an eternity. Instead, blessedly, the agony faded, and he came to himself. He knelt on an endless plain of glowing white stone. Light coalesced beside him, forming into a figure dressed in gold and white, holding a short scepter. What were you seeing? Odium asked, curious. He tapped his scepter on the ground like a cane. Noadon's palace, where Dalinar had been moments before, materialized out of light beside them. Ah, this one again. Looking for answers from the dead? Dalinar squeezed his eyes shut. What a fool he had been. If there had ever been a hope of peace, he'd probably destroyed it by pulling that Parshendi woman into a vision and subjecting her to Odium's horrors. Dalinar, Dalinar, Odium said. He settled down on a seat formed from light, then rested one hand on Dalinar's shoulder. It hurts, doesn't it? Yes, I know pain. I am the only god who does, the only one who cares. Can there be peace? Delinar asked, his voice ragged. Speaking was hard. 
he'd felt himself being ripped apart in the light moments before. Yes, Dalinar, Odium said. There can be. There will be. After you destroy Roshar. After you destroy it, Dalinar. I am the one who will rebuild it. Agree to a contest between champions, Dalinar forced out. Let us, let us find a way to... He trailed off. How could he fight this thing? Odium patted Dalinar's shoulder. Be strong, Dalinar. I have faith in you even when you don't have it in yourself. Though it will hurt for a time, there is an end. Peace is in your future. Push through the agony. Then you will be victorious, my son. The vision faded and Dalinar found himself back in the upper room of Eurythiru. He collapsed into the seat he'd placed there, Navani taking his arm, concerned. Through his bond, Dalinar sensed weeping. The Stormfather had kept Odium back, but storms he had paid a price. The most powerful spren on Roshar, embodiment of the tempest that shaped all life, was crying like a child, whispering that Odium was too strong. 110. A Million Stars The Midnight Mother created monsters of shadow and oil, dark imitations of creatures she saw or consumed. Their description matches no spren I can find in modern literature. From Hesse's Mythica, page 252. Captain Notum gave the command and two of the sailors unlatched a section of the hull, exposing the crashing waves of beads just beyond. Shalan put her free hand on the frame of the open cargo door and leaned out over the churning depths. Adolin tried to tug her back, but she remained in place. She'd chosen to wear Vale's outfit today, in part for the pockets. She carried three larger gemstones. Kaladin carried four others. Their bromes had all run out of stormlight. Even these larger unset gems were getting close to failing. Hopefully they would last long enough to get them to Thalen City and the Oath Gate. Beyond the waves, so close that the sailors feared hidden rocks beneath the beads, a dark landscape interrupted the horizon. The inverse of Longbrow's Straits, a place where trees grew tall, forming a black jungle of glass plants. A sailor clomped down the steps into the hold and barked something at Captain Notum. Your enemies are close now, the captain translated. Honor's Path had made a heroic effort these last few hours, pushing its mandras to exhaustion, and it hadn't been nearly enough. The fused were slower than Kaladin could go, but they were still far faster than the ship. Shalan looked at the captain. His bearded face, which glowed with a soft phantom light, betrayed nothing of what must have been a powerful conflict for him. Turn over the captives to the enemy and perhaps save his crew? Or set them free and hope the ancient daughter could escape? A door at the back of the hold opened, and Kaladin led Syl from her cabin. The captain had only now given permission to release her, 
as if wishing to delay the decision until the last possible moment. Syl's color seemed muted, and she clung to Kaladin's arm, unsteady. Was she going to be able to make it to shore with them? She's a spren. She doesn't need air. She'll be fine. Hopefully. Go then, the captain said, and be swift. I cannot promise that my crew once captured will be able to keep this secret for long. Apparently it was difficult to kill Spren, but hurting them was quite easy. Another sailor released Adeline's sword Spren from her cabin. She didn't look as weathered as Syl. One place seemed as good as another to her. Kaladin led Syl over. Ancient daughter, the captain said, bowing his head. Won't meet my eyes, Notum, Syl said. I suppose locking me away here isn't too different from all those days you spent running about at father's whims back home. He didn't reply, but instead turned away. With Syl and the dead-eye joining them, that only left one person. Azure lounged by the steps, wearing her breastplate and cloak, arms folded. You sure you won't change your mind? Shallan asked. Azure shook her head. Azure, Kaladin said. I was too harsh earlier. That doesn't mean I... It's not that, she said. I simply have a different thread to chase. And besides, I left my men to fight these monsters in Kulinar. Doesn't feel right to do the same again. She smiled. Don't fear for me, Stormblessed. You will have a much better chance if I stay here, as will these sailors. When you boys next meet the swordsman who taught you that morning kata, warn him that I'm looking for him. Zael? Adeline said. You know Zael? We're old friends, she said. Notum, have your sailors been cutting those bales of cloth into the shapes I requested? Yes, the captain said. But I don't understand. You soon will. She gave Kaladin a lazy salute. He returned it, sharper. Then she nodded to them and walked up toward the main deck. The ship crashed through a large wave of beads, sending some through the open cargo deck doors. Sailors with brooms started brushing them back toward the opening. Are you going? The captain said to Shallan. Every moment you delay increases the danger to us all. He still wouldn't look at Syl. Right, Shallan thought. Well, someone had to start the party. She took Adolin by one hand and Pattern by the other. Kaladin linked hands with Pattern and Syl, and Adolin grabbed his spren. They crowded into the opening into the cargo hold, looking at the glass beads below, churning, catching the light of a distant sun, sparkling like a million stars. All right, she said. Jump! Shallan threw herself off the ship, joined by the others. She crashed into the beads which swallowed her. They seemed to slip too easily into them. Like before, when she'd fallen into this ocean, it felt like something was pulling her down. She sank into the beads, which rolled against her skin, overwhelming her senses with thoughts of trees and rocks. She fought the sensations, struggling to keep herself from thrashing too much. She clung to Adeline, but Pattern's hand was pulled from her grip. I can't do this. I can't let them claim me. I can't. 
They hit the bottom, which was shallow here near the shore. Then Shalon finally let herself draw in stormlight, one precious gemstone's worth. It sustained her, calmed her. She fished in her pocket for the bead she'd picked from the bucket earlier. When she fed the beads stormlight, the other beads around her trembled, then pulled back, forming the walls and ceiling of a small room. The stormlight curling from her skin illuminated the space with a faint glow. Adolin let go of her hand and fell to his knees, coughing and gasping. His dead eye just stood there as always. Damnation, Adolin said, wheezing. Drowning with no water. It shouldn't be so hard, should it? All we had to do was hold our breath. Shalan stepped to the side of the room, listening. Yes, it was almost like she could hear the beads whispering to her beneath their clattering. She plunged her hand through the wall, and her fingers brushed cloth. She grabbed hold, and a moment later, Kaladin seized her arm and pulled himself into the room made from beads, stumbling and falling to his knees. He wasn't glowing. You didn't use a gemstone? Shalon asked. Almost had to, he said. He took a few deep breaths, then stood up. But we need to conserve those, he turned around. Sill? A disturbance at the other side of the chamber announced someone approaching. Whoever it was wasn't able to get in until Shalon walked over and broke the surface of the bead wall with her hand. Pattern entered and looked around the room, humming happily. Mmm, a nice pattern, Shalon. Sill, Kaladin repeated. We jumped hand in hand, but she let go. Where she'll be fine, Shalon said. Mmm, Pattern agreed. Spren need no air. Kaladin took a deep breath, then nodded. He started pacing anyway, so Shalon settled down on the ground to wait, pack in her lap. They each carried a change of clothing, three water jugs, and some of the food Adolin had purchased. Hopefully it would be enough to reach Thalen City. Then she'd have to make the Oathgate work. They waited as long as they dared, hoping the fuse had passed them by, chasing the ship. Finally, Shalon stood up and pointed. That way. You sure? Kaladin asked. Yes, even the slope agrees. She kicked at the obsidian ground, which ran at a gentle incline. Right, Adolin said. Lock hands. They did so, and, heart fluttering, Shalon recovered the stormlight from her shell of a room. Beads came crashing down, enveloping her. They started up the slope against the tide of beads. It was more difficult than she'd imagined. The current of the shifting beads seemed determined to hold them back. Still, she had stormlight to sustain her. They soon reached a place where the ground was too steep to walk on easily. Shalon let go of the men's hands and scrambled up the incline. A moment after her head broke the surface, Syl appeared on the bank, reaching down and helping Shalon up the last few feet. Beads rolled off her clothing, clattering against the ground, as the others pulled themselves onto the shore. I saw the enemy fly past, Syl said. I was hiding by the trees here. At her urging, they entered the forest of glass plants before settling down to recover from their escape. Shalan immediately felt herself itching for her sketch pad. These trees! 
The trunks were translucent. The leaves looked like they were blown from glass in a multitude of colors. Moss drooped from one branch like melted green glass, strands hanging down in silky lines. When she touched them, they broke off. Overhead, the clouds rippled with the mother-of-pearl iridescence that marked another high storm in the real world. Shalon could barely see it through the canopy, but the effect on Pattern and Sill was immediate. They stood up straighter, and Sill's wan color brightened to a healthy blue-white. Pattern's head shifted more quickly, spinning through a dozen different cycles in a matter of minutes. Stormlight still trailed from Shalon's skin. She'd taken in a rather large amount of it, but hadn't lost too much. She returned it to the gemstone, a process she didn't quite understand, but which felt natural at the same time. Nearby, Syl looked to the southwest with a kind of wistful, far-off expression. Syl? Shalon asked. There's a storm that way, too, she whispered, then shook herself and seemed embarrassed. Kaladin dug out two gemstones. All right, he said. We fly. They decided to use two gemstones worth of stormlight to fly inward, a gamble to get a head start on their hike and to get away from the coast. Hopefully the fused wouldn't treat the honor spren too harshly. Shalon worried for them, but equally for what would happen if the fused doubled back to search for her group. A short flight now should deposit them far enough inland that they'd be tough to locate. Once they landed, they would hike across several days' worth of Shadesmar landscape before reaching the island of Thalena, which would manifest as a lake here. Thalen City and its Oathgate were on the very rim of that lake. Kaladin lashed them one at a time, and fortunately his arts worked on the spren as they did humans. They took to the air and started the last leg of their journey. 111. Ayla Steely It will not take a careful reader to ascertain I have listed only eight of the unmade here. Lore is confident there were nine, an unholy number, asymmetrical and often associated with the enemy. From Hesse's Mythica, page 266. Dalinar stepped out of the Oathgate control building into Thalen City and was met by the man he most wanted to punch in all Roshar. Meridas Amaram stood straight in his house Sadius uniform, clean-shaven, narrow-faced, square-jawed. Tall, orderly, with shining buttons and a sharp posture, he was the very image of a perfect Alethi officer. Report, Dalinar said, hopefully keeping the dislike out of his voice. Amaram, Sadius, fell into step with Dalinar, and they walked to the edge of the Oathgate platform overlooking the city. Dalinar's guards gave them space to converse. Our crews have done wonders for this city, Bright Lord, Amaram said. We focused our initial attentions on the debris outside the walls. I worried that would give an invading force too much cover, not to mention rubble to construct a ramp up to the wall. Indeed, the plain before the city walls, which had once housed the markets and warehouses of the docks, was completely clear. A killing field, interrupted by the occasional outline of a broken foundation. 
The Almighty only knew how the Thalen military had allowed a collection of buildings outside the walls in the first place. That would have been a nightmare to defend. We showed up positions where the wall was weakened, Amaram continued, gesturing. It's not high by Kolinar standards, but it is an impressive fortification nonetheless. We cleared out the buildings right inside to provide staging and resource dumps, and my army is camped there. We then helped with general reconstruction. The city looks far better, Dalinar said. Your men did well. Then maybe our penance can be over, Amaram said. He said it straight, though anger spread, a pool of boiling blood spread from beneath his right foot. Your work here was important, soldier. You didn't only rebuild a city, you built the trust of the Thalen people. Of course, Amaram added more softly. And I do see the tactical importance of knowing the enemy fortifications. You fool. The Thalans are not our enemies. I misspoke, Amaram said. Yet I cannot ignore that the Kolin troops have been deployed to the border between our kingdom and Yakoved. Your men got to liberate our homeland while mine spend their days digging in rocks. You do realize the effect this has on their morale, particularly since many of them still assume you assassinated their high prince. I hope that their current leader has worked to disabuse them of such false notions. Amaram finally turned to look Dalinar in the eyes. Those anger spren were still there, though his tone was crisp and militaristic. Bright Lord, I know you for a realist. I've modeled my career after yours. Frankly, even if you did kill him, which I know you must deny, I would respect you for it. Toral was a liability to this nation. Let me prove to you that I am not the same. Storm Stellinar, I'm your best frontline general, and you know it. Toral spent years wasting me because my reputation intimidated him. Don't make the same mistake. Use me. Let me fight for Alethkar, not kiss the feet of Thalen merchants. I— Enough, Dalinar snapped. Follow your orders. That is how you'll prove yourself to me. Amaram stepped back, then, after a deliberate pause, saluted. He spun on his heel and marched down into the city. That man, Dalinar thought. Dalinar had intended to tell him that this island would host the front lines in the war, but the conversation had slipped from him. Well, Amaram might quickly get the fighting he wanted, a fact he would discover soon enough at the planning meeting. Boots on stone sounded behind him as a group of men in blue uniforms joined him at the rim of the plateau. Permission to stab him a little, sir, said Teft, a bridgeman leader. How do you stab someone a little, soldier? I could do it, Lynn said. I've only started training with a spear. We could claim it was an accident. Now, now, Lopin said. You want to stab him a little? Let my cousin, who yo do it, sir. He's the expert on little things. Short joke, Huyo said in his broken Alethi. Be glad not short temper. I'm just trying to involve you, Huyo. I know that most people overlook you. It's very easy to do, you see. Attention, Dalinar snapped, though he found himself smiling. 
They scrambled into ranks. Kaladin had trained them well. You've got, Dalinar checked the clock on his arm, thirty-seven minutes until the meeting, men, and, er, uh, women. Don't be late. They rushed off, chatting among themselves. Nivani, Yasna, and Renarin joined him soon after, and his wife gave him a sly smile as she noticed him checking his arm clock again. Storming woman had gotten him to start arriving early for appointments just by strapping a device to his arm. As they gathered, Fen's son climbed up onto the Earthgate platform and greeted Dalinar warmly. We have rooms for you, above the temple where we'll be meeting. I, uh, well, we know you don't need them, since you can simply Oathgate home in an instant. We'll take them gladly, son, Dalinar said. I could use a little refreshment and time to think. The young man grinned. Dalinar never would get used to those spiked eyebrows. They climbed down from the platform, and a Thalen guard gave the all-clear. A scribe sent word via span read that the next transfer could take place. Dalinar paused to watch. A minute later, a flash occurred, surrounding the Oathgate with light. The Oathgates were under almost perpetual use these days. Malata was running the device today, as was becoming her duty more often. Uncle, Yasna said as he lingered. Merely curious about who's coming in next. I could pull the records for you, Yasna said. The new arrivals turned out to be a group of Thalen merchants in pompous clothing. They made their way down the larger ramp, surrounded by guards and accompanied by several men carrying large chests. More bankers, Fen's son said. The quiet economic collapse of Roshar continues. Collapse? Dalinar said, surprised. Bankers all across the continent have been pulling out of cities, Yasna said, pointing. See that fortress of a building at the front of the ancient ward down below? That's the Thalen Gemstone Reserve. Local governments are going to have difficulty financing troops after this, Fen's son said with a grimace. They'll have to write here with authorized span reads and get spheres shipped to them. It's going to be a nightmare of logistics for anyone not close to an oath gate. Dalinar frowned. Couldn't you encourage the merchants to stay and support the cities they were in? Sir, he replied. Sir, force the merchants to obey military authority? Forget I asked, Dalinar said, sharing a look with Navani and Yasna. Navani smiled fondly at what was probably a huge social misstep, but he suspected Yasna agreed with him. She'd probably have seized the banks and used them to fund the war. Renarin lingered, watching the merchants. How big are the gemstones they brought? he asked. Bright Lord? Ben's son asked, glancing toward Dalinar for help. They'll be spheres, normal spheres. Any larger gemstones? Renarin asked. He turned toward them. Anywhere in the city? Sure, lots of them, Ben's son said. Some really nice pieces, like in every city. Um, why, Brightlorn? Because, Renarin said. He didn't say anything more. Dalinar splashed water onto his face from a basin in his rooms, which were in a villa above the Temple of Telenolot, on the top tier of the city the royal ward. 
He wiped his face with the towel and reached out to the Stormfather. Feeling any better? I do not feel like men. I do not sicken like men. I am, the Stormfather rumbled. I could have been destroyed, though, splintered into a thousand pieces. I live only because the enemy fears exposing himself to a strike from cultivation. So she lives still, then? The third god? Yes. You've met her? I... I have? You do not remember. But normally she hides. Cowardice. Perhaps wisdom, Dalinar said. The Night Watcher is not her. Yes, you've said. The Night Watcher is like you. Are there others, though? Spren like you, or the Night Watcher? Spren that are shadows of gods? There is a third sibling. They are not with us. In hiding? No, slumbering. Tell me more. No, but no, leave them alone. You hurt them enough. Fine. Dalinar said, setting aside the towel and leaning against the window. The air smelled of salt, reminding him of something not yet clear in his mind. One last hole in his memory. A trip by sea, and his visit to the valley. He glanced at the dresser beside the washbasin, which held a book written in unfamiliar Thalen glyphs. A little note beside it, in Alethi glyphs, read, Pathway. King. Ben had left him a gift, a copy of The Way of Kings in Thalen. I've done it, Dalinar said. I've united them, Stormfather. I've kept my oath and have brought men together instead of dividing them. Perhaps this can be penance in some small way for the pain I've caused. The Stormfather rumbled in reply. Did he care? About what we felt, Dalinar asked. Honor, the Almighty. Did he truly care about men's pain? He did. Then I didn't understand why, but now I do. Odium lies when he claims to have sole ownership of passion. The Stonefather paused. I remember at the end... Honor was more obsessed with oaths. There were times when the oath itself was more important than the meaning behind it. But he was not a passionless monster. He loved humankind. He died defending you. Dalinar found Nabani entertaining Terebangian in the common area of their villa. Your Majesty? Dalinar asked. You could call me Vargo, if you wish, Teravangian said, pacing without looking at Dalinar. It is what they called me as a youth. What's wrong? Dalinar asked. I'm just worried. My scholars... It is nothing, Dalinar, nothing. Silliness. I am... I am well today. He stopped and squeezed his pale gray eyes shut. That's good, isn't it? 
Yes, but it is not a day to be heartless, so I worry. Heartless? What did he mean? Do you need to sit out the meeting? Navani asked. Teravangian shook his head quickly. Come, let us go. I will be better, better once we've started, I'm sure. As Dalinar stepped into the temple's main chamber, he found that he was looking forward to the meeting. What a strange revelation. He had spent so much of his youth and middle years dreading politics and the endless ramblings of meetings. Now he was excited. He could see the outlines of something grand in this room. The Azish delegation warmly greeted Queen Fen, with busier Nura even giving Fen a poem she'd written as thanks for the Thalen hospitality. Fen's son made a point of sitting next to Renarin and chatting with him. Emperor Yonagon looked comfortable on his throne, surrounded by allies and friends. Bridge Four joked with the guards of High Prince Aladar, while Lift, the edge dancer, perched on a window sill nearby, listening with a cocked head. In addition to the five scout women in uniform, two women in havas had joined Bridge Four. They carried notepads and pencils and had sewn Bridge Four patches to the upper sleeves of their dresses, the place where scribes commonly wore their platoon insignia. Alethi high princes, Azish viziers, knights radiant and Thalen admirals all in one room. The prime of Emul talking tactics with Aladar, who had been aiding the beleaguered country. General Khal and Teshev, speaking with the princess of Yezir, who was eyeing Halam Khal, their eldest son, standing tall in his father's shard plate by the door. There was talk of a political union there. It would be the first in centuries between an Alethi and a Makabaki princedom. Unite them, a voice whispered the words in Dalinar's mind, echoing with the same resonant sound from months ago when Dalinar had first started seeing the visions. I'm doing so, Dalinar whispered back. Unite them. Stormfather, is that you? Why do you keep saying this to me? I said nothing. It was growing hard to distinguish between his own thoughts and what came from the Stormfather. Visions and memories struggled for space in Dalinar's brain. To clear his mind, he strode around the perimeter of the circular temple chamber. Murals on the walls, ones he had healed with his abilities, depicted the Herald Telenolot during several of his many, many last stands against the Voidbringers. A large map had been mounted on one wall depicting the Tarat Sea and surrounding areas, with markers noting the locations of their fleet. The room quieted as Dalinar stepped up and studied this. He glanced for a moment out the doors of the temple toward the bay. Already a few of the faster ships of their fleet had arrived, flying the flags of both Carbranth and Azir. Your Excellency, Dalinar said to Yonagon, could you share news of your troops? The Emperor gave leave for Nura to report. The main fleet was less than a day away. Their outriders, or scout ships, as she called them, had spotted no indications of the enemy advance. They'd worried that this window between storms would be when the enemy would move, but so far there was no sign. The admirals began to discuss how to best patrol the seas while keeping Thalen City safe. Dalinar was pleased by the conversation, mostly because the admirals seemed to think that the real danger to Thalen City had passed, 
Abaden High Prince had managed to get a foot scout close enough to Marat to count the ships at the docks. Well over a hundred vessels were waiting in the various coves and ports along the coast. For whatever reason, they weren't ready to launch yet, which was a blessing. The meeting progressed, with Ben belatedly welcoming everyone. Dalinar realized he should have let her take charge from the start. She described the defenses in Thalen City and raised concerns from her guildmasters about Amaram's troops. Apparently they'd been carousing. Amaram stiffened at that. For all his faults, he liked to run a tight army. Sometime near the end of this discussion, Dalinar noticed Renarin shifting uncomfortably in his seat. As the Azish scribes began explaining their code of rules and guidelines for the coalition, Renarin excused himself in a hoarse voice and left. Dalinar glanced at Navani, who seemed troubled. Yasna stood to follow, but was interrupted by a scribe bringing her a small sheaf of documents. She accepted them, and moved to Navani's side so they could study them together. Should we break? Dalinar thought, checking his forearm clock. They'd only been going for an hour, and the Azish were obviously excited by their guidelines. The Stormfather rumbled. What? Dalinar thought. Something, something is coming. A storm. Dalinar stood up, looking about the room, half expecting assassins to attack. His sudden motion caught the attention of one of the Azish viziers, a short man with a very large hat. Bright Lord? the interpreter asked at a word from the vizier. I... Dalinar could feel it. Something's wrong. Dalinar... Ben asked, what are you talking about? Spanreeds suddenly started blinking throughout the room. A dozen flashing rubies. Dalinar's heart sidestepped. Anticipation spren rose around him, streamers whipping from the ground as the various scribes grabbed the blinking Spanreeds from boxes or belts and set them out to begin writing. Yasna didn't notice that one of hers was blinking. She was too distracted by what she and Navani were reading. The Everstone just hit Shinovar, Queen Fen finally explained, reading over a scribe's shoulder. Impossible, Eole Satius said. It has only been five days since the last one. They come at nine-day intervals. Yes, well, I think we have enough confirmation, Fen said, nodding toward the span reeds. The storm is too new, Teshev said. She pulled her shawl closer as she read. We don't know it well enough to truly judge its patterns. The reports from Steen say it is particularly violent this time, moving faster than before. Dalinar felt cold. How long until it reaches us? Ben asked. Hours yet, Teshub said. It can take a full day for the high storm to get from one side of Roshar to the other, and the ever storm is slower. Usually... It's moving faster, though, Yonagon said through his interpreter. How far away are our ships? How are we going to shelter them? Peace, Your Excellency, Fen said. The ships are close, and the new docks miles farther along the coast are sheltered from both east and west. We merely need to make sure the fleet goes directly there instead of stopping here to drop off troops. The room buzzed with conversations as the various groups received reports from their contacts in Tashik, who in turn would be relaying information from contacts in Erie, Steen, 
or even Shinovar. We should break for a short time, Dalinar told them. The others agreed, distracted, and separated into groups scattered about the room. Dalinar settled back in his seat, releasing a held breath. That wasn't so bad. We can deal with this. That wasn't it, the Storm Father said. He rumbled, his concerned voice growing very soft as he continued. There's more. Dalinar jumped back to his feet, instincts prompting him to thrust his hand to the side, fingers splayed to summon a blade he no longer possessed. Bridge four responded immediately, dropping food from the table of victuals, grabbing spears. Nobody else seemed to notice. But notice what? No attack came. Conversations continued on all sides. Yasna and Navani were still huddled side by side, reading. Navani gasped softly, safe hand going to her mouth. Yasna looked at Dalinar, lips drawn to a line. Their message wasn't about the storm, Dalinar thought, pulling his chair over to them. All right, he whispered, though they were far enough from other groups to have some privacy. What is it? A breakthrough was made in translating the dawn chant, Navani whispered. Teams in Carbranth and the monasteries of Yakoved have arrived at the news separately, using the seed we provided through the visions. We are finally receiving translations. That's good, right? Dalinar said. Yasna sighed. Uncle, the piece that historians have been most eager to translate is called the Elastili. Other sources claim it is old, perhaps the oldest document in written memory, said to be scribed by the heralds themselves. From the translation that finally came in today, the carving appears to be the account of someone who witnessed the very first coming of the Voidbringers, long, long ago, even before the first desolation. Blood of my fathers, Dalinar said. Before the first desolation? The last desolation had happened more than four thousand years ago. They were speaking of events lost to time. And we can read it? They came from another world, Navani said, reading from her sheet, using powers that we have been forbidden to touch, dangerous powers of spren and surges. They destroyed their lands and have come to us begging. We took them in as commanded by the gods. What else could we do? They were a people forlorn without home. Our pity destroyed us, for their betrayal extended even to our gods, to spren, stone, and wind. Beware the otherworlders, the traitors, those with tongues of sweetness but with minds that lust for blood. Do not take them in, do not give them succor. Well were they named Voidbringers, for they brought the void, the empty pit that sucks in emotion. A new god, their god. These Voidbringers know no songs. They cannot hear Roshar, and where they go they bring silence. They look soft with no shell, but they are hard. They have but one heart, and it cannot ever live. She lowered the page. Dalinar frowned. It's nonsense, he thought. Is it claiming that the first Parshman who came to invade had no carapace? But how would the writer know that Parshman should have carapace? 
And what is this about songs? It clicked. That was not written by a human, Dalinar whispered. No, uncle, Yasna said softly. The writer was a dawn singer, one of the original inhabitants of Roshar. The dawn singers weren't spren, as theology has often postulated. Nor were they heralds. They were parshmen, and the people they welcomed to their world, the other worlders, were us, Dalinar whispered. He felt cold, like he'd been dunked in icy water. They named us void bringers. Yasna sighed. I have suspected this for a time. The first desolation was the invasion of humankind onto Roshar. We came here and seized this land from the Parshman after we accidentally used surge binding to destroy our previous world. That is the truth that destroyed the radiance. The Stormfather rumbled in his mind. Dalinar stared at that sheet of paper in Navani's hand. Such a small, seemingly unimportant object to have created such a pit inside of him. It's true, isn't it? he thought at the Stormfather. Storms, we're not the defenders of our homeland. We're the invaders. Nearby, Teravangian argued softly with his scribes, then finally stood up. He cleared his throat, and the various groups slowly stilled. The Aesish contingent had servants pull their chairs back toward the group, and Queen Fen returned to her place, though she didn't sit. She stood, arms folded, looking perturbed. I have had disconcerting news, Terabangian said, over the span read just now. It involves Bright Lord Colin. I don't wish to be objectionable. No, Ben said. I've heard it too. I'm going to need an explanation. Agreed, Nora said. Dalinar stood up. I realize this is troubling. I... I haven't had time to adjust. Perhaps we could adjourn and worry about the storm first. We can discuss this later. Perhaps, Terabangian said. Yes... Perhaps. But it is a problem. We have believed that ours is a righteous war, but this news of mankind's origins has me disconcerted. What are you talking about? Fen said. The news from the Vedan translators? Ancient texts manifesting that humans came from another world? Bah, Fen said. Dusty books and ideas for philosophers. What I want to know about is this High King business. High King? Yonagon asked through an interpreter. I have an essay, Fen said, slapping papers against her hand, from Zeta, the voiced, claiming that before King Elokar left for Alethkar, he swore to Dalinar to accept him as emperor. Nora, the vizier, leaped to her feet. What? Emperor is an exaggeration, Dalinar said, trying to reorient toward this unexpected attack. It's an internal Alethe matter. Navani stood beside him. My son was merely concerned about his political relation to Dalinar. We have prepared an explanation for you all, 
and our high princes can confirm that we are not looking to expand our influence to your nations. And this, Nora said, holding up some pages, were you preparing an explanation for this as well? What is that? Delinar asked, bracing himself. Accounts of two visions, Nora said, that you didn't share with us, in which you supposedly met and fraternized with a being known as Odium. Behind Dalinar, Lift gasped. He glanced toward her and the men of Bridge Four who were muttering among themselves. This is bad, Dalinar thought. Too much, too fast for me to control. Yasna leaped to her feet. This is obviously a concentrated attempt to destroy our reputation. Someone deliberately released all this information at the same time. Is it true? Nora asked in Alethi. Dalana Colin, have you met with our enemy? Navani gripped his arm. Yasna subtly shook her head. Don't answer that. Yes, Dalinar said. Did he? Nora asked pointedly. Tell you you'd destroy Roshar. What of this ancient record? Teravangian said. It claims that the Radiants already destroyed one world. Is that not what caused them to disband? They worried that their powers could not be controlled. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this High King nonsense, Ben said. How is it merely an internal Alethi matter if you've allowed another king to swear to you? Everyone started talking at once. Navani and Yasna stepped forward, responding to the attacks, but Dalinar only sank into his seat. It was all falling apart. A sword, as keen as any on a battlefield, had been rammed into the heart of his coalition. This is what you feared, he thought. A world that turns not upon force of armies, but upon the concerns of scribes and bureaucrats. And in that world, he had just been deftly outflanked. 112. For the Living I am certain there are nine unmade. There are many legends and names that I could have misinterpreted, conflating two unmade into one. In the next section I will discuss my theories on this. From Hesse's Mythica, page 266 Kaladin remembered a woman's kiss. Tara had been special. The dark-eyed daughter of an assistant quartermaster, she had grown up helping with her father's work. Though she was a hundred percent Alethi, she preferred dresses of an old-fashioned Thalen style, which had an apron-like front with straps over the shoulders and skirts that ended right below the knee. She'd wear a buttoned shirt underneath, often in a bright color, brighter than most dark eyes could afford. Tara knew how to squeeze the most out of her spheres. That day, Kaladin had been sitting on a stump, shirt off, sweating. The evening was growing cold as the sun set, and he basked in the last warmth. His spear resting across his lap, he toyed with a rock of white, brown, and black, alternating colors. The warmth from the sun was mirrored as someone warm hugged him from behind, wrapping her arms across his chest. Kaladin rested a calloused hand on Tara's smooth one, drinking in her scent of starched uniforms, new leather, and other clean things. You're done early, he said. I thought there were green vines to outfit today. 
I have the new girl doing the rest. I'm surprised. I know how much you like this part. Storms, she said, slipping around in front of him. They get so embarrassed when you measure them. Hold on, kid. I'm not making a pass at you because I'm putting a measuring tape up against your chest. I swear. She lifted his spear, looking it over with a critical eye, testing the balance. I wish you'd let me requisition a new one for you. I like that one. Took me forever to find one long enough. She peered along the length of the weapon to make sure it was straight. She would never trust it as she hadn't personally requisitioned it for him. She wore green today, under a brown skirt, her black hair tied back in a tail. Slightly plump, with a round face and firm build, Tara's beauty was a subtle thing, like an uncut gemstone. The more you saw of it, the more you discovered of its natural facets, the more you loved it, until one day it struck you that you'd never known anything as wonderful. Any young boys among the green vines? Kaladin asked, standing up and pocketing Tian's stone. I didn't notice. He grunted, waving to Gaul, one of the other squad leaders. You know I like to watch for kids who might need a little extra looking out for. I know, but I was busy. We got a caravan from Kolinar today. She leaned close to him. There was real flour in one of the packages. I traded in some favors. You know I've been wanting you to try some of my father's Thalen bread? I thought maybe we'd fix it tonight. Your father hates me. He's coming around. Besides, he loves anyone who compliments his bread. I have evening practice. You just got done practicing. I just got done warming up. He looked to her, then grimaced. I organized the evening practice, Tara. I can't just skip it. Besides, I thought you were going to be busy all evening. Maybe tomorrow? Lunch? He kissed her on the cheek and reclaimed his spear. He'd taken only a step away when she spoke. I'm leaving, Cal, she said from behind. He stumbled over his own feet, then spun about. What? I'm transferring, she said. They offered me a scribe's job in Morn's vault, with the High Prince's house. It's a good opportunity, particularly for someone like me. But, he gaped. Leaving? I wanted to tell you over dinner, not out here in the cold. It's something I have to do. Father's getting older. He's worried he'll end up being shipped to the Shattered Plains. If I can get work, he can join me. Kaladin put a hand to his head. She couldn't just leave, could she? Tara walked over, stood on the tips of her toes, and kissed him lightly on the lips. Could you... not... Go, he asked. She shook her head. Maybe I could get a transfer, he said, to the High Prince's standing house guard. Would you do that? I... No, he wouldn't. Not while he carried that stone in his pocket. Not while the memory of his brother dying was fresh in his mind. Not while light-eyed high lords got boys killed in petty fights. Oh, Cal she whispered, then squeezed his arm. Maybe someday you'll learn how to be there for the living, not just for the dead.
After she left, he got two letters from her talking about her life in Morn's vault. He had paid someone to read them to him. He never sent responses, because he was stupid, because he didn't understand, because men make mistakes when they're young and angry, because she had been right. Kaladin shouldered his harpoon, leading his companions through the strange forest. They'd flown part of the way, but needed to conserve what little stormlight they had left. So they'd spent the last two days hiking. Trees and more trees, lifespren floating among them, the occasional bobbing souls of fish. Sil kept saying they were lucky they hadn't encountered any anger spren or other predators. To her, this forest was strangely silent, strangely empty. The jungle-style trees had given way to taller, more statuesque ones, with deep crimson trunks and limbs like burnt-red crystals that, at the ends, burst into small collections of minerals. The rugged obsidian landscape was full of deep valleys and endless towering hills. Kaladin was beginning to worry that, despite the motionless sun to provide an unerring way to gauge their heading, they were going in the wrong direction. Storms, bridge boy, Adolin said, hiking up the incline after him. Maybe a break? At the top, Kaladin said. Without stormlight, Shallan trailed farthest behind, pattern at her side. Exhaustion spren circled in the air above like large chickens. Though she tried to push herself, she wasn't a soldier, and often was the biggest limitation to their pace. Of course, without her map-making skills and memory of Thalen City's exact location, they probably wouldn't have any idea which way to go. Fortunately, there was no sign of pursuit. Still, Kaladin couldn't help worrying that they were moving too slowly. Be there, Tara had told him, for the living. He urged them up this hillside, past a section of broken ground where the obsidian had fractured like layers of creme that hadn't hardened properly. Worry pulled him forward, step after relentless step. He had to get to the Oathgate. He would not fail like he had in Kolinar. A single glowing wind spren burst a light next to him as he reached the top of the hill. Cresting it, he found himself overlooking a sea of souls. Thousands upon thousands of candle flames bobbed about in the next valley over, moving above a grand ocean of glass beads. Thalen City. Adolin joined him, then finally Shallan and the three spren. Shallan sighed and settled to the ground, coughing softly from the effort of the climb. Amid the sea of lights were two towering spren, much like the ones they'd seen in Kolinar. One sparkled a multitude of colors, while the other shimmered an oily black. Both stood tall, holding spears as long as a building, the sentries of the Oath Gate. And they didn't look corrupted. Beneath them, the device itself manifested as a large stone platform with a wide sweeping white bridge running over the beads into the shore. That bridge was guarded by an entire army of enemy spren, hundreds, perhaps thousands strong. 113. The Thing Men Do Best. If I'm correct and my research true, then the question remains. Who is the ninth unmade? Is it truly Di Gonarthus? 
If so, could their actions have actually caused the complete destruction of Imea? From Hesse's Mythica, page 307. Dalinar stood alone in the rooms Queen Fen had given him, staring out the window, looking west, toward Shinabar, far beyond the horizon, a land with strange beasts like horses, chickens, and humans. He'd left the other monarchs arguing in the temple below. Anything he said only seemed to widen the rifts among them. They didn't trust him. They'd never really trusted him. His deception proved them right. Storms, he felt furious with himself. He should have released those visions, should have immediately told the others about Elokar. There had simply been so much piling on top of him. His memories, his excommunication, worry for Adolin and Elokar. Part of him couldn't help but be impressed by how deftly he'd been outmaneuvered. Queen Fen worried about Dalinar being genuine. The enemy had delivered perfect proof that Dalinar had hidden political motives. Nura and the Azish worried that the powers were dangerous, whispering of lost radiance. To them, the enemy indicated that Dalinar was being manipulated by evil visions. And to Teravangian, who spoke so often of philosophy, the enemy suggested that their moral foundation for the war was a sham. Or maybe that dart was for Dalinar himself— Teravangian said that a king was justified in doing terrible things in the name of the state. But Dalinar, for once he'd assumed what he was doing was right. Did you really think you belonged here? The Stormfather asked. That you were native to Roshar? Yes, maybe, Dalinar said. I thought, maybe we came from Shinovar originally. That is the land you were given, the Stormfather said a place where the plants and animals you brought here could grow. We weren't able to confine ourselves to what we were given. When has any man ever been content with what he has? When has any tyrant ever said to himself, This is enough, Dalinar whispered, remembering words Gavilar had once spoken. The Stormfather rumbled. The Almighty kept this from his radiance, Dalinar said. When they discovered it, they abandoned their vows. It is more than that. My memory of all of this is... strange. First, I was not fully awake. I was but the spren of a storm. Then I was like a child, changed and shaped during the frantic last days of a dying god. But I do remember... It was not only the truth of humankind's origin that caused the recreants. It was the distinct, powerful fear that they would destroy this world, as men like them had destroyed the one before. The Radiants abandoned their vows for that reason, as will you. I will not, Dalinar said. I won't let my Radiants retread the fate of their predecessors. Won't you? Dalinar's attention was drawn to a solemn group of men leaving the temple below. Bridge four, spears held on slumped shoulders, heads bowed as they quietly marched down the steps. Dalinar scrambled out of his villa and ran down the steps to intercept the bridgemen. Where are you going? he demanded. They halted, falling into ranks at attention. Sir, Teft said. 
We thought we'd head back to Urethiru. We left some of the men behind, and they deserve to know about this business with the ancient radiance. What we've discovered doesn't change the fact that we are being invaded, Dalinar said. Invaded by people trying to reclaim their homeland, Sigzil said. Storms. I'd be mad too. We're supposed to be the good guys, you know, Leighton said. Fighting for a good cause for once in our storming lives. Echoes of his own thoughts. Dalinar found he couldn't formulate an argument against that. We'll see what Cal says, Teft replied. Sir, all respect, sir. But we'll see what he says. He knows the right of things, even when the rest of us don't. And if he never returns, Dalinar thought, what if none of them return? It had been four weeks. How long could he keep pretending that Adolin and Elokar were alive out there somewhere? That pain hid behind the rest, taunting him. The bridgemen gave Dalinar their unique, cross-armed salute, then left without waiting to be dismissed. In the past, Honor was able to guard against this, the Stormfather told him. He convinced the Radiants they were righteous, even if this land hadn't originally been theirs. Who cares what your ancestors did when the enemy is trying to kill you right now? But in the days leading to the Recreants, Honor was dying. When that generation of knights learned the truth, Honor did not support them. He raved, speaking of the Dawn Shards— Ancient weapons used to destroy the Tranquiline Halls. Honor promised that surge binders would do the same to Roshar. Odium claimed the same thing. He can see the future, though only cloudily. Regardless, I understand now as I never did before. The ancient Radiants didn't abandon their oaths out of pettiness. They tried to protect the world. I blame them for their weakness, their broken oaths. But I also understand. You have cursed me, human, with this capacity. The meeting in the temple seemed to be breaking up. The Azish contingent started down the steps. Our enemy hasn't changed, Dalinar said to them. The need for a coalition is as strong as ever. The young emperor, being carried in a palaquin, didn't look at him. Oddly, the Azish didn't make for the oath gate, instead taking a path down into the city. Only Vizier Nura idled to speak to him. Yasnakolin might be right, she said in Azish. The destruction of our old world, your secret visions... This business with you being High King, it seems too great a coincidence for it all to come at once. Then you can see that we're being manipulated. Manipulated by the truth, Colin, she said, meeting his eyes. That Oathgate is dangerous. These powers of yours are dangerous. Deny it. I cannot. I will not found this coalition on lies. You already have. He drew in a sharp breath. Nora shook her head. We will take the scout ships and join the fleet carrying our soldiers. Then we will wait out this storm. After that, we shall see. 
Derevenjian has said we may use his vessels to return to our empire without needing to use the Utgates. She walked off after the emperor, eschewing the palaquin waiting to carry her. Others drifted down the steps around him, Vaden high princes who gave excuses, Thalen light eyes from their guild councils who avoided him. The Alethi high princes and scribes expressed solidarity, but Alethkar couldn't do this on its own. Queen Fen was one of the last to leave the temple. Will you leave me too? Delinar asked. She laughed. To go where, old hound? An army is coming this way. I still need your famous Alethi infantry. I can't afford to throw you out. Such bitterness. Oh, did it show? I'm going to check on the city's defenses. If you decide to join us, we'll be at the walls. I'm sorry, Fen, Dalinar said, for betraying your trust. She shrugged. I don't really think you intend to conquer me, Colin. But oddly, I can't help wishing I did have to worry. Best I can tell, you've become a good man right in time to bravely sink with this ship. That's commendable, until I remember that the Blackthorn would have long since murdered everyone trying to sink him. Fen and her consort climbed into a palaquin. People continued to trickle past, but eventually Dalinar stood alone before the quiet temple. I'm sorry, Dalinar, Terebangian said softly from behind. Dalinar turned, surprised to find the old man sitting on the steps. I assumed everyone had the same information, and that it would be best to air it. I didn't expect all of this. This isn't your fault, Dalinar said. And yet... He stood up, then walked slowly down the steps. I'm sorry, Dalinar. I fear I can no longer fight beside you. Why? Dalinar said. Teravangian, you're the most pragmatic ruler I've met. Aren't you the one who talked to me about the importance of doing what was politically necessary? And that is what I must do now, Dalinar. I wish I could explain. Forgive me. He ignored Dalinar's pleas, limping down the stairs. Moving stiffly, the old man climbed into a palaquin and was carried away. Dalinar sank down on the steps. I tried my best to hide this, the Stormfather said, so we could continue living a lie. It is, in my experience, the thing men do best. Don't insult us. What? Is this not what you've been doing these last six years? Pretending that you aren't a monster? Pretending you didn't kill her, Dalinar? Dalinar winced. He made a fist, but there was nothing here he could fight. He dropped his hand to his side, shoulders drooping. Finally, he climbed to his feet and quietly trudged up the stone steps to his villa. The End of Part Four Interludes Venli Rissin Teft Interlude 12 Rhythm of Withdrawal After living for a week in a cave in Marat, 
Venley found herself missing the stone hermitage she'd been given outside Kolinar. Her new dwelling was even more austere, with only a single blanket for sleeping, and a simple cook fire upon which she prepared fish the crowds brought her. She was growing dirty, rough. That was what the fused seemed to want, a hermit living in the wilds. Apparently that was more convincing for the local crowds they brought to listen to her, most of whom were former Thalen slaves. She was instructed to speak of passion and emotion more often than she had in Alethkar. My people are dead now, Venley said to destruction, repeating the now familiar speech. They fell in that last assault, singing as they drew the storm. I remain, but my people's work is done. Those words hurt. Her people couldn't be completely gone, could they? The day now belongs to your passion, she continued to command. We had named ourselves listeners because of the songs we heard. These are your heritage, but you are not to just listen, but sing. Adopt the rhythms and passions of your ancestors. You must sail to battle for the future, for your children, and for us, those who died, that you might exist. She turned away, as instructed that she do after the end of each speech. She wasn't allowed to answer questions any longer. Not since she'd talked with some of these singers about the specific history of her people. It made her wonder. Did the fused and the void spren fear the heritage of her people, even as they used her for their purposes? Or did they not trust her for other reasons? She put her hand to her pouch. Odium didn't seem to know that she'd been in that vision with Dalinar Colin. Behind, a void spren led the Thalen singers away. Venley moved toward her cave, but then hesitated. A fused sat on the rocks just above the opening. Ancient one, she asked. He grinned at her and giggled. Another one of those. She started into the cave, but he dropped and seized her under the arms, then carried her into the sky. Venley prevented herself with difficulty, from trying to batter him away. The fused never touched her, not even the crazy ones, without orders. Indeed, this one flew her down to one of the many ships at the harbor, where Rhine, the tall fused who had accompanied her during her first days preaching in Alethkar, stood at the prow. He glanced toward her as she was landed roughly on the deck. She hummed to conceit at her treatment. He hummed to spite, a small acknowledgement of a wrong done, the best she'd get out of him, so she hummed to satisfaction in response. Ancient one, she asked to Craving. You are to accompany us as we sail, he said to command. You may wash yourself in the cabin as we go if you wish, there is water. Venley hummed to Craving and looked toward the main cabin. Craving slipped into abashment as she considered the sheer size of the fleet that was launching around her. Hundreds of ships, which must have been filled with thousands of singers, were sailing from coves all along the coast, 
They dotted the seas like rock buds on the plains. Now? she asked to abashment. I wasn't prepared. I didn't know. You may wish to grab hold of something. The storm will soon arrive. She looked to the west. A storm? She hummed to craving again. Ask, Ryan said to command. I can easily see the strength of the grand assault force we've gathered, but why do we need such? Are not the fused enough of an army themselves? Cowardice, he asked to derision. You do not wish to fight. I simply seek to understand. Rhyme changed to a new rhythm, one she rarely heard. The rhythm of withdrawal, one of the only new rhythms that had a calm tone. The strongest and most skilled of our number have yet to awaken. But even if we were all awake, we would not fight this war alone. This world will not be ours. We fight to give it to you, our descendants. When it is won, our vengeance taken and our homeland secured at long last, we will sleep, finally. He then pointed at the cabin. Go prepare. We will sail swiftly, with Odium's own storm to guide us. As if in agreement with his words, red lightning flashed on the western horizon. Interlude 13 Rissin. Rissin was bored. Once, she'd walked to the farthest reaches of Roshar, trading with the isolationist Shin. Once, she'd sailed with her Babsk to ice water and cut a deal with pirates. Once, she'd climbed Reshi great shells, which were as large as towns. Now, she kept Queen Fen's ledgers. It was a good job, with an office in the Thalen Gemstone Reserve. Vestim, her former Babsk, had traded favors to get her the job. Her apprenticeship finished, she was a free woman, no longer a student, now a master of boredom. She sat in her chair, doodling at the edges of a Leoforan word puzzle. Rissin could balance while sitting, though she couldn't feel her legs, and embarrassingly couldn't control certain bodily functions. She had to rely upon her porters to move her. Career over, freedom over, life over. She sighed and pushed away her word puzzle. Time to get back to work. Her duties included annotating the Queen's pending mercantile contracts with references to previous ones, keeping the Queen's personal vault in the gemstone reserve, preparing weekly expenditure reports, and accounting the Queen's salary as a portion of taxable income from various Thalen interests at home and abroad. Whee! She had an audit today, which had prevented her from attending Fenn's meeting with the monarchs. She might have enjoyed seeing the Blackthorn and the Azish Emperor. Well, the other aides would bring her word once the meeting was through. For now, she prepared for her audit, working by sphere light, as the reserve didn't have windows. The walls of her office were blank. 
She'd originally hung souvenirs from her years traveling, but those had reminded her of a life she could no longer have, a life full of promise, a life that had ended when she'd stupidly fallen from the head of a great shell and landed here in this cripple's chair. Now the only memento she kept was a single pot of shin grass. Well, that and the little creature sleeping among the blades. Cheery Cheery breathed softly, rippling the too dumb grass, which didn't pull into burrows. It grew in something called soil, which was like creme that never hardened. Cheery Cheery herself was a small winged beast, a little longer than Rissen's outstretched palm. The Reshi named her a larkin, and though she was the size of a large Kremling, she had the snout, carapace, and build of a creature far more grand. An axe-hound, perhaps, with wings. A lithe little flying predator. Though for all her dangerous appearance, she sure did like to nap. As Rissin worked, Cheery Cheery finally stirred and peeked out from the grass, then made a series of clicking sounds with her jaw. She climbed down onto the desk and eyed the diamond mark Rissin was using for light. No, Rissin said, double-checking numbers in her ledger. Cheery Cheery clicked again, slinking toward the gem. You just ate, Rissin said, then used her palm to shoo the larkin back. I need that for light. Cheery Cheery clicked in annoyance, then flew, wings beating very quickly, to the upper reaches of the room where she settled onto one of her favorite perches, the lintel above the doorway. A short time later, a knock at the door interrupted Rissin's tedium. Come, she said. Her man, Wumlach, who was half assistant, half porter, poked his head in. Let me guess, Rissin said. The auditor is early. They always were. Yes, but... Behind Wumlach, Rissin caught sight of a familiar flat-topped conical hat. Wumlach stepped back and gestured toward an old man in blue and red robes, his Thalen eyebrows tucked behind his ears. Spry for a man past his seventieth year, Vestim had a wise but unyielding way about him, inoffensively calculating. He carried a small box under his arm. Rissin gasped in delight. Once she would have leaped to her feet to embrace him. Now she could only sit there and gape. But you were off to trade in New Natanen. The seas are not safe these days, Vistim said, and the queen requested my aid in difficult negotiations with the Alethi. I have returned, with some reluctance, to accept an appointment from Her Majesty. An appointment? In the government? Rissin asked. Minister of Trade and royal liaison to the Guild of Shipping Merchants. Rissin could only gape further. That was the highest civilian appointment in the kingdom. But, Babsk, you'll have to live in Thalen City. Well, I am feeling my age these days. Nonsense. You're as lively as I am. Rissin glanced at her legs. More... Not so lively that I wouldn't mind a seat. She realized he was still standing in the doorway to her office. 
Even all these months after her accident, she pushed with her arms as if to spring up and fetch him a seat. Idiot. Please, sit, she said, waving toward the room's other chair. He settled down and placed his box on the table, while she twisted to do something to welcome him, leaning over precariously to get the teapot. The tea was cold, unfortunately. Cheery Cheery had drained the gemstone in her fabrile hot plate. I can't believe you'd agree to settle down, she said, handing him a cup. Some would say that the opportunity afforded me is far too important to refuse. Storm that, Rissin said. Staying in one city will wilt you. You'll spend your days doing paperwork and being bored. Rissin, he said, taking her hand. Child. She looked away. Cheery Cheery flew down and landed on her head, clicking angrily at Vestim. I promise I'm not going to hurt her, the old man said, grinning and releasing Rissin's hand. Here, I brought you something. See? He held up a ruby chip. Cheery Cheery considered, then hovered down above his hand, not touching it, and sucked the stormlight out. It flew to her in a little stream, and she clicked happily, then zipped over to the pot of grass and wriggled into it, peeking out at Vestim. You still have the grass, I see, he said. You ordered me to keep it. You're now a master merchant, Rissin. You needn't obey the orders of a doddering old man. The grass rustled as Cheery Cheery shifted. She was too big to hide in it, though that never stopped her from trying. Cheery Cheery likes it, Rissin said. Maybe because it can't move, kind of like me. Have you tried that radiant? Yes, he can't heal my legs. It's been too long since my accident, which is appropriate. This is my consequence, payment for a contract I entered into willingly the moment I climbed down the side of that great shell. You don't have to lock yourself away, Rissin. This is a good job. You yourself got it for me. Because you refused to go on further trading expeditions. What good would I be? One must trade from a position of power, something I can never do again. Besides an exotic goods merchant who can't walk, you know how much hiking is required? Vestim took her hand again. I thought you were frightened. I thought you wanted something safe and secure. But I've been listening. Hamalka has told me. You spoke to my superior? People talk. My work has been exemplary, Rissin said. It isn't your work she's worried about. He turned and brushed the grass, drawing Cheery Cheery's attention to his hand. She narrowed her eyes at it. Do you remember what I told you when you cut out that grass? That I was to keep it, until it no longer seemed odd. You've always been so quick to make assumptions. About yourself, now, more than others, here. Perhaps this will... Anyway, have a look. Vestim handed her the box. She frowned, then slid off the wooden lid. Inside was a wound-up cord of white rope. Beside that, a slip of paper? 
Resin took out the sheet, reading it. A deed of ownership, she whispered. To a ship? Brand new, Vestim said. A three-masted frigate, the largest I've ever owned, with Fabril stabilizers for storms of the finest Thalen engineering. I had her built in the shipyards of Kulna City, which luckily sheltered her from both storms. While I've given the rest of my fleet, what's left of it, to the queen for use against the invasion, this one I reserved. Wandersail, Rissin said, reading the ship's name. Babsk, you are a romantic. Don't tell me you believe that old story. One can believe in a story without believing it happened. He smiled. Whose rules are you following, Rissin? Who is forcing you to stay here? Take this ship. Go. I wish to fund your initial trade run as an investment. After that, you'll have to do well to maintain a vessel of this size. Rissin recognized the white rope now. It was a captain's cord some twenty feet long, used as a traditional Thalen mark of ownership. She'd wrap it in her colors and string it in the rigging of her ship. It was a gift worth a fortune. I can't take this, she said, putting the box on the desk. I'm sorry, I... He pushed the cord into her hands. Just think about it, Risen. Humor an old man who can no longer travel. She held the rope and found her eyes watering. Bother. Babsk, I have an auditor coming today. I need to be composed and ready to account the queen's vault. Fortunately, the auditor is an old friend who has seen much worse from you than a few tears. But you're the minister of trade. They were going to make me go to a stuffy meeting with old Colin and his soldiers, Vestim said, leaning in. But I insisted on coming to do this. I've always wanted to see the queen's vault in person. Rissin wiped her tears, trying to recover some of her decorum. Well, let's be to it then. I assure you, everything is in order. The sphere vault's thick steel door required three numbers to open, each rolled into a different dial in three separate rooms. Rissin and other scribes knew one number, the door guards protected another, and an auditor, like Vestim, was typically given a third by the queen or the minister of the treasury. All were changed at random intervals. Rissin knew for a fact that this was mostly for show. In a world of shard blades, the real defense of the vault was in the layers of guards who surrounded the building, and, more importantly, in the careful auditing of its contents. Though novels were full of stories of the vault being robbed, the only real thefts had occurred through embezzlement. Rissin moved her dial to the proper number, then pulled the lever in her room. The vault door finally opened with a resounding thump, and she scrambled her dial and called for Wumlock. Her porter entered, then pushed down on the back handles of her chair, lifting the front legs so he could wheel it out to meet the others. 
Vestim stood by the now-open vault door with several soldiers. Today's inner door guard, Talik, stood with crossbow at the ready, barring entry. There was a slot that let the men stationed in the vault communicate with those outside, but the door couldn't be opened from within. Scheduled accounting of the Queen's personal vault, Rissin said to him. Daily passcode lockstep. Click nodded, stepping back and lowering his crossbow. Vestim entered with ledger in hand, trailed by a member of the Queen's guard, a rough-looking man with a shaved head and spiked eyebrows. Once they were in, Wumlach wheeled Rissin through the vault door down a short corridor and into a little alcove, where another guard, Fladum today, waited. Her porter brushed off his hands, then nodded to her and retreated. Click shut the vault door after him, the metal making a deep thump as it locked into place. The inner vault guards didn't like anyone coming in who wasn't specifically authorized, and that included her servant. She'd have to rely on the guards to move her now, but unfortunately her large wheeled chair was too bulky to fit between the rows of shelves in the main vault. Rissin felt a healthy dose of shame in front of her former Babsk as she was taken like a sack of roots from her chair with rear wheels to a smaller chair with poles along the sides. Being carried was the most humiliating part. The guards left her usual chair in the alcove, near the steps down to the lower level. Then Click and the guardsman the queen had sent, Rissin didn't know his name, took the poles and carried her into the main vault chamber. Even here, in this job where she sat most of the time, her inability was a huge inconvenience. Her embarrassment was exacerbated as Chiri Chiri, who wasn't allowed in the vault for practical reasons, flitted by in a buzz of wings. How had she gotten in? Click chuckled, but Rissin only sighed. The main vault chamber was filled with metal racks like bookcases containing display boxes of gemstones. It smelled stale, of a place that never changed and was never intended to change. The guards carried her down one of the narrow rows, light from spheres tied to their belts providing the only illumination. Rissin carried the captain's rope in her lap and fingered it with one hand. Surely she couldn't take this offer. It was too generous, too incredible, too difficult. So dark, Vestim said. A room full of a million gemstones and it's dark. Most gems never leave, Rissin said. The personal merchant vaults are on the lower level and there's some light to those, with the spheres everyone has been bringing lately. These, though, they're always here. Possession of these gems changed frequently, but it was all done with numbers in a ledger. It was a quirk of the Thalen system of underwriting trades. As long as everyone was confident that these gemstones were here, large sums could change hands without risk of anything being stolen. Each gemstone was carefully annotated with numbers inscribed both on a plate glued to its bottom and on the rack that held it. Those numbers were what people bought and sold. Rissin was shocked by how few people actually asked to come down and view the thing they were trading to own. 
zero zero one three zero one seven dash three six, Vistim said. The Benval Diamond. I owned that way back when. Memorized the number even. Huh. You know, it's smaller than I thought it would be. She and the two guards led Vistim to the back wall, which held a series of smaller metal vault doors. The main vault behind them was silent. No other scribes were working today, though Cheery Cheery did flit past. She hovered down toward the queen's guardsman, eyeing the spheres on his belt. But Rissin snatched her from the air. Cheery Cheery griped, buzzing her wings against Rissin's hand and clicking. Rissin blushed, but held tight. Sorry, must be like a buffet for her down here. Click said. A buffet of empty plates, Rissin said. Keep an eye on your belt, Click. The two guards set her chair down near a specific vault. With her free hand, Rissin dug a key from her pocket and handed it to Vestim. Go ahead, Vault 13. Vestim unlocked and swung open the smaller vault within the vault, which was roughly the size of a closet. Light poured from it. The shelves inside were filled with gemstones, spheres, jewelry, and even some mundane objects like letters and an old knife. But the most stunning item in the collection was obviously the large ruby on the center shelf. The size of a child's head, it glowed brightly. The king's drop. Gemstones of its size weren't unheard of, most great shells had gem hearts as big. What made the king's drop unique was that it was still glowing, over 200 years after being first locked into the vault. Vestim touched it with one finger. The light shone with such brilliance that the room seemed almost to be in daylight, though shaded blood red by the gemstone's color. Amazing, Vestim whispered. As far as scholars can tell, Risen said, the king's drop never loses its stormlight. A stone this large should have run out after a month. It's something about the crystal lattice, the lack of flaws and imperfections. They say it's a chunk off the stone of ten dawns. Another story, Risen said. You are a romantic. Her former Babsk smiled, then placed a cloth shade over the gemstone to reduce its glare so it wouldn't interfere with their work. He opened his ledger. Let's start with the smaller gemstones and work our way up, shall we? Rissin nodded. The queen's guard killed Click. He did it with a knife, right into the neck. Click dropped without a word, though the sound of the knife being ripped free shocked Rissin. The treacherous guard knocked against her chair, toppling her over as he slashed at Vestim. The enemy underestimated the merchant's spryness. Vestim dodged backward into the queen's vault, screaming, Murder! Robbery! Raise the alarm! Rissin untangled herself from her toppled chair and panicked, pulled herself away by her arms, dragging legs like cordwood. The murderer reached into the vault to deal with her babsk, and she heard a grunt. A moment later, the traitor stepped out, carrying a large red light in his hand. 
the king's drop, shining brightly enough despite its black wrapping cloth. Rissin caught a glimpse of Vestim collapsed on the floor inside the vault, holding his side. The traitor kicked the door closed, locking the old merchant away. He glanced toward her, and a crossbow bolt hit him. Thief in the vault, Fladim's voice said. Alarm! Rissin pulled herself to a row of gemstone racks. Behind her, the thief took a second crossbow bolt, but didn't seem to notice. How? The thief stepped over and picked up poor Click's crossbow. Footsteps and calls indicated that several guards from the lower level had heard Fladim and were coming up the steps. The thief fired the crossbow once down a nearby row, and a shout of pain from Fladim indicated it had connected. Another guardsman arrived a second later and attacked the thief with his sword. He should have run for help, Rissin thought, as she huddled by the shelf. The thief took a cut along the face from the sword, then set his prize down and caught the guard's arm. The two struggled, and Rissin watched the cut on the thief's face, re-knit. He was healing? Could could this man be a knight radiant? Rissin's eyes flicked toward the large ruby the thief had set down. Four more guards joined the fight, obviously assuming they could subdue one man on their own. Sit back, let them handle it. Cheery Cheery suddenly darted past, ignoring the combatants and making for the glowing gemstone. Rissin lunged forward, well, more flopped forward to grab at the larkin, but missed. Cheery Cheery landed on the cloth containing the enormous ruby. Nearby, the thief stabbed one of the guards. Rissin winced at the awful sight of their struggle, lit by the ruby, then crawled forward, dragging her legs, and snatched the gemstone. Cheery Cheery clicked at her in annoyance as Rissin dragged the ruby with her around the corner. Another guard screamed. They were dropping quickly. Have to do something. Can't just sit here, can I? Rissin clutched the gemstone and looked down the row between shelves. An impossible distance, hundreds of feet, to the corridor and the exit. The door was locked, but she could call through the communication slot for help. But why? If five guards couldn't handle the thief, what could one crippled woman do? My Babsk is locked in the Queen's vault. Bleeding. She looked down the long row again, then used the cord Vestim had given her to tie the ruby's cloth closed around it and attached it to her ankle so she wouldn't have to carry it. Then she started pulling herself along the shelves. Cheery Cheery rode behind on the ruby, and its light dimmed. Everyone else was struggling for their lives, but the little larkin was feasting. Rissin made faster progress than she had expected to, though soon her arms began to ache. Behind, the fighting stilled, the last guard's shout cutting off. Rissin redoubled her efforts, pulling herself along toward the exit, reaching the alcove where they'd left her chair. Here she found blood. Fladim lay at the threshold of the entry corridor, a bolt in him, his own crossbow on the floor beside him. Rissin collapsed a couple of feet from him, muscles burning. 
Spheres on his belt illuminated her chair and the steps down to the lower vault level. No more help would be coming from down there. Past Flodham's body, the corridor led to the door out. Help, she shouted. Thief! She thought she heard voices on the other side, through the communication slot. But it would take the guards outside time to get it open, as they didn't know all three codes. Maybe that was good. The thief couldn't get out until they opened it, right? Of course, that meant she was trapped inside with him, while the stim bled. The silence from behind haunted her. Rissin heaved herself to Fladam's corpse and took his crossbow and bolts, then pulled herself toward the steps. She turned over, putting the enormous ruby beside her, and pushed up so that she was seated against the wall. She waited, sweating, struggling to point the unwieldy weapon into the darkness of the vault. Footsteps sounded somewhere inside, coming closer. Trembling, she swung the crossbow back and forth, searching for motion. Only then did she notice that the crossbow wasn't loaded. She gasped, then hastily pulled out a bolt. She looked from it to the crossbow, helpless. You were supposed to cock the weapon by stepping into a stirrup on the front, then pulling it upward. Easy to do, if you could step in the first place. A figure emerged from the darkness. The bald guard, his clothing ripped, a sword dripping blood in his shadowed hand. Rissin lowered the crossbow. What did it matter? Did she think she could fight? That man could just heal anyway. She was alone, helpless. Live or die, did she care? I, yes, yes I care. I want to sail my own ship. A sudden blur darted out of the darkness and flew around the thief. Cheery Cheery moved with blinding speed, hovering about the man, drawing his attention. Rissin frantically placed the crossbow bolt, then took the captain's cord off the ruby sack and tied one end to the stirrup at the front of the crossbow. She tied the other end to the back of her heavy wooden chair. That done, she spared a glance for Cheery Cheery, then hesitated. The larkin was feeding off the thief. A line of light streamed from him, but it was a strange dark violet light. Cheery Cheery flew about, drawing it from the man, whose face melted away, revealing marbled skin underneath. A parchment? Wearing some kind of disguise? No, a void bringer. He growled and said something in an unfamiliar language, batting at Cheery Cheery, who buzzed away into the darkness. Rissin gripped the crossbow tightly with one hand, then with the other, she shoved her chair down the long stairway. It fell in a clatter, the rope playing out after it. Rissin grabbed onto the crossbow with the other hand. The cord pulled taut as the chair jerked to a stop, partway down the steps, and she yanked back on the crossbow at the same time, hanging on for all she was worth. Click. She cut the rope free with her belt knife. The thief lunged for her, and she twisted, screaming, and pulled the firing lever on the crossbow. She didn't know how to aim properly, but the thief obligingly loomed over her. The crossbow bolt hit him right in the chin. He dropped, and blessedly fell still. 
Whatever power had been healing him was gone, consumed by Chiri Chiri. The larkin buzzed over and landed on her stomach, clicking happily. Thank you, Rissin whispered, sweat streaming down the sides of her face. Thank you, thank you, she hesitated. Are you bigger? Chiri Chiri clicked happily. The stim. I need the second set of keys. And that ruby, the king's drop. The Voidbringers had been trying to steal it. Why? Rissin tossed aside the crossbow, then pulled herself toward the vault door.